What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly. We just launched a brand new podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network hosted by our very own staff writer, Shay Serrano, called Villains. In the premiere episode, Shay is joined by Jason Concepcion and Sean Fennessy to dissect the iconic villain Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. You can check out the first episode and subscribe right now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Kevin O'Connor, and we are the Corner Three. Joining me here in beautiful Los Angeles is Ringer Associate Editor Danny Chow. It really is beautiful. About 76 degrees outside. It's it's wonderful. Wearing a beautiful, Y'all are disgusting. Wearing a beautiful flowered shirt as well. Yeah, it's love a, it, Danny. It's a nice little floral print. Feels like it feels like a Thanksgiving like tablecloth. Yeah, maybe I'll try it on later. Now. I I don't know if it would look as good on me as it would with you though. Anyway. From Dallas, Texas, cold Dallas, Texas, Springer staff writer Jonathan Charks. What's up, guys? We're recording this at 2.10 p.m. on Thursday, November 15th, and you're hearing it on Friday. Let's start off with the biggest news of the week, and that's Jimmy Butler, who was, of course, traded to the Philadelphia 76ers. Danny, you wrote an article on The Ringer breaking down Butler's debut, a loss to the Orlando Magic, a game our own Kevin Clark actually attended. Oh, yeah. What was your big takeaway from that game, and what do you want to see moving forward? This is something that we've kind of touched on even before, you know, the first game. It was mainly, what is Jimmy Butler going to look like alongside Ben Simmons? Two guys who are very much of of the same vein. Power guards who love to have the ball in their hands and are probably most effective with the ball in their hands. And what we saw in the game was... probably, definitely. Yeah, what we saw in the game was, you know, a bit of a mixed bag there. It was certainly clunky with those guys. I think it looked at the NBA.com slash stats uh, data um, with touches, time of possession, and dribbles per touch. All of that was close to identical for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, for, but it was drastically different for Jimmy Butler. His front court touches were similar, but his time of possession was drastically different. In Minnesota, Butler possessed the ball for 4.3 minutes per game, and in his debut with the Sixers, it was only 1.7 minutes. And that number is obviously going to rise for him as he gets integrated into the offense, right. learns all the play. They only ran really one type of set for him the entire game. Uh, and with that said, those touches and those minutes of possess the ball are going to have to come from somewhere. Jonathan, how does their offense need to evolve as those touches are given to Jimmy Butler? And they're probably going to be milked from someone like Ben Simmons. You know, what was weird to me was that it seemed like Simmons and Butler always played together. Yeah. And it's 31 like minutes M- in their debut together. Yeah. And Embiid was like always the one playing by himself. And I think that's like the first big question that Brett Brown has to figure out is like, how do I split up these three guys? Do you always have two of three in? Who gets that? And who gets that time by himself to dominate the ball? I think that's the first question. Because if you look at it in Minnesota, Tibbs never split up his guys at all, which is crazy. I think Brown's not, he can at least put him up somewhat, but Embiid's playing so well, I can tell you he won't have the ball by himself. So in other words, you you don't agree with what he did on, on in their debut with Embiid playing alone and with Butler and Simmons playing 31 minutes together. Well, see, it's I, weird because like I get it because Embiid's been so good, but I'm just, I just wonder for Simmons especially, I feel like he could be the odd man out if you're going to play him with Butler the whole time. Yeah. Because what does Simmons do off the ball, really? When I was watching the game, I was just like, man, the spacing is so cramped when you have basically Brett Brown running these really weird jumbo lineups where he had... Like, that's uh, got to stop for sure. Simmons, Butler on the court, who could honestly play four or five if they wanted to. And they did that a little bit, but... They were also on the court with Mike Mascala, with Amir Johnson. There are a lot of guys who can't shoot in these lineups. And suddenly you're looking at like negative spacing. 
on this team. There were times where somebody would drive to the basket and you'd have Simmons or Markel Fultz just sitting in the dunker spot, not yeah. moving the entire right. possession, and the lane's clogged, right? I think that's something where it's just going to be a problem that they have to deal with with, with both of those guys. Um, but to your point, John, with the lineups and the combinations that Brett Brown puts on the floor— Regardless of the most frequently used one, I think there's going to be times where all three of those guys are on the floor, where Butler and Simmons are going to be on the floor. And that's why when it comes to the touches, to me, that's what's most interesting. You mentioned that Simmons isn't going to be an off-ball guy, but he needs to be, doesn't he? Yeah. I think he has to be as Jimmy Butler starts getting the ball in his hands more often. But why do, If you're Ben Simmons, though, why do you have to be? Right? Like, I'm a second-year player. I was Rookie of the Year. I'm the guy. Like, why do I got to... Why? Because Jimmy Butler is a better go-to scorer. Jimmy, ben Simmons is pretty much a zero in the half court. Right now, the, with the way he is, he is a, pretty much a zero in right. the half court. But see, that's my question for this whole thing. Is like, I'm sure it didn't escape Ben and Joel's notice that Towns and Wiggins looked as punks by the time Jimmy left Philadelphia, by Minnesota. Are they cool with taking it back to Jimmy Butler? Like, how is this going to work? I, I just, I'm just wondering like the personalities, even before the basketball. I don't really know if... Simmons taking a backseat is really it. It's more like, okay, once he sets these screens for Butler, he's not really doing anything with that. He just kind of roams back to, you know, a spot down low, down near the paint, where he can be a really dynamic player off the ball and, like, flush incredible dunks on people if if he just kind of got into the right spots. But he didn't really get into any spot. And that was kind of the weird, frustrating part of watching that dynamic in the first game. So you think it's it's more about getting those jumbo lines off the floor, like getting him more space? I off. think so. And I, I kind of think that if we're talking about someone who should be playing maybe by themselves as the solo star of the team, I think it should be Simmons. Sure. Have him have yeah, him run with that. like four, you know, floor spacers and suddenly the Sixers are probably, you know, a devastating offensive it, team. I, I disagree with you guys because I think it's more it's about more than just the lineups. I think you can't play Simmons by himself because I think you're still going to have Markel Fultz on the floor at some point. Your mm-hmm. floor, floor spacing is still going to be um, suffocating. Are you, with though? Both those. I'm, yeah. I, I think if for Brett Brown, you have to play Markel Fultz. Uh, I think it's really hard to put Ben Simmons in a Giannis and Tedekumpo-style atmosphere on this team. They just don't have enough shooters. You have to play those guys together. And they're, they're going to play together because they're the best players on the team. So you need to figure it out with all of them on the floor or just two of them. And I think, to your point, Danny, with Ben Simmons screening, there were times in that game where Ben Simmons would look like he was going to go set a screen right. and just slip. He would slip to the to the dunker spot near the baseline and hover there. It really w- isn't a pick and roll. It's just not. Like, at the end of that game in the fourth quarter, was there a single time where the Sixers ran a pick and roll to get a mismatch for Butler or Simmons against a smaller player? I don't think so. Was right. there a time where Joel Embiid was matched up on a smaller guy in the post? No. He was playing like a guard in the perimeter the entire fourth quarter. This isn't to overreact to one game, because it's really not one game. This has been a thing the entire season for the Sixers. They don't run a lot of pick and rolls. They don't run a lot of isolations. But I want. I really, really hope they do more of that more often. And I think that starts with Ben Simmons. You need to make him an impact player in the half court by taking the ball out of his hands and making him a Blake Griffin, a Draymond Green screener on ball for a guy like Jimmy Butler. Or even but does he want to do that? That's I don't know. Question. I don't know. Yeah. If he if he doesn't, then that's a bigger that's a bigger problem and a bigger issue that needs to be resolved. By I think that's to that the guy. issue. It might be the issue, you know, because right. we've been saying it for two years now. It hasn't happened. Maybe I'm sure Brad Brown can see it too. But this is the first year, though. This I mean, last year as a rookie, you know, it's him and TJ McConnell. You know, those those guys were both the point guards. They were both the ball handlers on the team. This year, it's Ben Simmons. It's Jimmy Butler. 
It's Markel Fultz trying to get developmental minutes when he's an absolute zero without the ball in his hands, too. Even TJ McConnell has a deep bench option. Like, right now, the fact is, when Ben Simmons doesn't have the ball in the half court, he can't be a zero. But he is right now, and I don't. And that might be his fault, to your point, John. But I, I just can't imagine that it's all his fault. I think it's on the players and the coaching to make him an impact player, show him what he can be when he's screening for somebody. Like, Draymond Green, think about what he has been for the Warriors when he's on the short roll and he can pick apart defenses and he can either drive, finish at the rim, or he can just throw a, throw a kickout pass to the corner shooter with J.J. Redick and Landry Shamit, those are their two best shooters on the team. They don't have a lot of great shooters, but I think there's enough well, for Ben they, Simmons they like an impact. They have to play Korkmaz more, yeah. I think. He's got to get in there. I mean, I mean, they have no choice. So what, one thing that they did in the game that I saw a couple times, and it was pretty promising, you know, you got Jimmy Butler pretty much taking the ball into the front court and then you had Embiid and Simmons setting double screens. Oh, that was a and great play. Suddenly yeah. you're just like, oh, okay. Well, this is exactly how it starts. This is exactly what you want to see out of your three best players. Everyone kind of working in tandem. Embiid popping, Simmons rolling, yep. or rather, you know, getting to the dunker spot, more so than a roll. It can yeah. it can totally be one of their pet plays. Yep. And they just kind of need to develop more of that, more of that chemistry. And it's gonna come. But those plays and those those kind of schemes were kind of few and far in between. And that that's why it's not overreacting here, right? Like Butler's going to start getting integrated more into the offense. You're going to see more than just that specific play, which I think they ran four or five, maybe even six times over the course of the game. They're going to get more sets going for Jimmy Butler. I think he showed some nice cuts off ball as well. So oh, yeah. if Ben Simmons does continue dominating the ball and Butler's more the guy who takes that backseat role with the ball handling... Butler's still going to get spot up well, opportunities. If you remember in Minnesota, when he first got there, he took a backseat to Wiggins and Towns. He did. Remember like a month and a half? Then he was like, forget this. I'm Jimmy Butler. <laughs> Give me the ball. <laughs> and that's what could happen here, right? And I think that gets back to your point about Ben Simmons, John, where maybe he's the guy who doesn't want to commit to that off-ball role because he's so good as a playmaker. And I think with this season with Ben Simmons, he's been a little bit more passive. I want to say I I. I feel like I've seen more LSU Ben Simmons this season on the offensive end of the floor. I mean, he's had some great moments. Don't right. get me wrong. He's just as good as he was last year, but he's not better. Um, you know, in that game, his usage percentage was only 11, which tied a career low um, over the course of his career. Yeah, and he took a career low amount of shots in the game, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. Outside of one game where he was in foul trouble. Incredibly passive game. Not a lot of movement off ball when the ball wasn't in his hands. That's the thing really to watch moving forward is how does Ben Simmons change if Jimmy Butler takes control of the ball like he did in Minnesota, John? I have a question for you. Do you think they're making a trade by the deadline? I think they're definitely going to try. I think they need shooting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A Kyle Korver type, a Contavious Caldwell-Pope, someone like that. who Let's could... let's rescue KCP. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm still on this island. I'm, I'm slowly drowning, but, you know, I'm, I'm still here. And then the other question I have for you, do you think in two years all these guys are still here in Philadelphia? All three of them? <laughs> um, I think two of them are at least. Yeah, right? I'm wondering. But, Already, I mean, I mean, I'm overreacting. I'm wondering. I mean, look, with Jimmy Butler, who knows with his free agent status. I think he wants summer. his money, though. I think Jimmy's going to take that money. That's what it sounds like it's really about for him. It's too early for this. But I did hear that Philadelphia and him have some sort of idea oh, of yeah. a contract. I'm not sure yeah. if it's the full five-year max, though. So maybe maybe there's agreement to something less than that yeah, full five-year max. Yeah, that had to have been part of the discussion in terms yeah. of acquiring him. Maybe, and this is just a guess. There's nothing I've heard, but maybe you could do something where it's like four years, 
team option on the four, on the fifth year, or maybe I'm not if that's even legal. CBA. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be talking out of my ass here, um, or or something that's just a little bit less than the full max. Right. I think that would be fair because uh, Jimmy Butler getting paid fifty million dollars at age thirty five with those knees. Scary. It's yeah. yeah. Ultimately, though, I feel like we're all in agreement, though, that this was worth the risk for the Philadelphia 76ers, yeah? Uh, Ooh, John, no. I just wonder if it makes you lose Ben Simmons long-term, whether it was worth the risk. That, to me, is a risk that we're not properly calibrating. Is if, like, in a year and a half, Ben Simmons decides he doesn't want to do this anymore. That, to me, that's what concerns me. To your point about Ben at his best alone, Ben in a Yana system where he's the, he's the really the centerpiece. He's the guy controlling the ball, surrounded by shooters. That right. If you're Ben's people, that's what, if I was clutch sports, for sure. I would right. run. Yep. Yep. You see him, you see Giannis thriving in Milwaukee with that, with those circumstances. You think, hmm, plug Ben in there. Imagine what he could do. And that's kind of, that, yeah, that, but that's kind of why I want to see him in this specific lineup. Let's do Ben Simmons, JJ Redick, Furkan Korkmaz. Wilson Chandler and Mike Muscala, and just have them run. <laughs> run. He was doing it in the fi- in the playoffs last year. It looked pretty well against Miami. With yeah, Ilyasova in there. You know what lineup I want to see? Joel Embiid with Jimmy Butler and Markel Fultz. Interesting. I want to see a larger sample of that. I'm not sure how much we're going to get. I mean, it. We, we didn't really see uh, Embiid's Butler no Simmons, right? That didn't really happen. No, no. We, we we didn't even see a single minute of the one I just mentioned with that trio. But I I would like to see that moving forward because. I realize how silly this is going to sound, but there are times the offense feels like it runs a little bit smoother with Markel Fultz in there. It just does. Wow, that's interesting. There, there's just times it feels it's like with TJ McConnell. It's not. It's not necessarily a knock against Ben. It's just sometimes you know you need your stabilizer. TJ McConnell offense runs smoothly. Markel Fultz. There's been some times where it feels like it runs a little bit smoother with him instead of Ben Simmons, and I would just like to see that. I got an insane trade for you. This is this was never happened, but I was just thinking about this this morning. What if, like, next year you traded Ben Simmons for Gary Harris and Jamal Murray? A lot of shooting in Philly, no, right? Who, uh, what's, what's the deal with Markel Fultz? Like, who's your, who's your ball handler? Probably Jimmy Butler. And then you have Murray <laughs> and Harris off the ball. I don't know. I, that is fascinating. I, I'm not, I'm, I wonder if, how Denver would feel about it. I think Simmons and Jokic would be crazy. I feel like Jokic fits better with Simmons than Embiid anyways. Because Jokic would play off the ball. I mean, you. How would you? How would you play Simmons in 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 Denver? I don't see Simmons and Jokic coexisting at all. Two guys. That, so? Two guys that are at their best with the ball in their hands. Yeah, because like yeah. I, I feel like everything that we're saying that Simmons isn't doing in the Sixers would go double with the Nuggets, where he would be forced into kind of being like this cutter off ball. Yeah, I mean, and, right? he's a, and he's a worse player than Jokic. I mean, well, I'm saying you, you, you put Jokic at the high screen. For oh, that, I mean, yeah, that would be wonderful. I would love to see that. I would. Love I feel like Simmons and Embiid. I'm not sure is going to work either long term. That's what I wonder. I feel like, I feel like Simmons is the guy. I think he's the guy in Washington more than even Butler. It's how is Simmons going? I think he's really the big question mark right now. Ben Simmons already a top 25, top 30 guy in the league, in my opinion. But he didn't really come back better than last season. His shot hasn't improved. He still hesitant to shoot from outside. That needs to improve. So these questions that we're talking about now don't apply. All he needs to do is be an average threat from three. And a lot of these questions suddenly aren't a concern at all. Yeah, and Kevin, like what you're saying, Embiid's gotten better. Like yes, you can see yeah. them growth in his game this season. His passing this year? Yeah, it's so much better. And that's why with Joel, I mean, it just annoyed me on, in that game against Orlando. Why did he not post up at the end of that game? Why was it not pick and rolls to get him on a switch on a smaller player where he draws a double can pick apart a defense? I, I just A lot of strange pull-ups yeah. in isolation. It was, it was that, baffling. That, that bothers me. And on the other side, of the trade, but can't ignore the Minnesota Timberwolves, the winners of two games in a row, and Carl Anthony Towns. He looks so happy, doesn't he, John? They're having fun out there, man. You can't argue with that. 
A lot of joy in that team. I think the big difference with Towns, he's playing with effort on defense against Anthony Davis. He blocked a shot. That block, that was the play. That was crazy. The block was great. A lot of effort from Towns on that end of the floor, and we'll see how it sustains. But um, early on, I'm impressed. Carl Anthony Towns looks like a new player right now, Danny. Yeah, I mean, you basically run the modern template for every NBA basketball team now. You put as many playmakers on the floor, you have 3 and D guys, and suddenly everything clicks. Right? Like, it's it really doesn't have to be that much more difficult when you have an offensive talent like Carl Anthony Towns. And that's what I'm excited about here, right? With Carl Anthony Towns, at the end of the season before Butler came, he was averaging like 28 points and 13 rebounds over his last 41 games. He, he had a jump at the end of his rookie year and then a jump at the end of his sophomore season. And we haven't seen that since then because of Butler's presence. And again, that's not Butler's fault. He's a great player. It's just the, the circumstances. But now Towns is in a situation where I think he's going to be able to put up those numbers if he's fed the opportunity consistently. And I think we're going to see that. More importantly, though, he needs to sustain the defensive effort. As for the new guys... Robert Covington adds a defensive presence. 41 minutes for Tibbs. I like it. Um, (laughs) Exactly. And then Dario Sarge, only 20 minutes uh, in his debut with the Minnesota Timberwolves. But I'm incredibly intrigued by how Thibodeau will use him. How do you think he'll be used in that situation? And do you think we'll see more playmaking from Sarge like we did see overseas with him? I think that's the hope, is long-term pairing him with Towns and kind of doing four or five pick and rolls and stuff. I don't know if Tibbs will be the guy to do that, but I think that is like the ultimate. That'd be the way to maximize Dario. I think Dario really took a backseat in Philadelphia because Embiid and Simmons really couldn't shoot it, so he kind of forced to be a spot-up shooter. And he has more of his game than that. Yeah, and, and he did solid. Right? He, he did incredibly well last year. He shot, shot 39% from three. Um, still made clutch, timely plays, You know, whether it was with a pass or whether it was on the defensive end of the floor, whether it was a clutch rebound. Sarge always has a knack for those moments. But the one thing we really just haven't seen from him in the NBA consistently is the passing. And like you said, John, we might not see this in Minnesota, but I'm hopeful we do. I, I, I really am. I think with that 4-5 front court with Towns and Sarge, it would be interesting to see that. You look beyond the fact that Covington and Sarge are these very you know modern NBA-type players, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you look at the core of, of who they are as players, and it's like, oh— these are totally Thibodeau guys. <laughs> like, they work extremely yeah. hard. They're, they're grinders. They can basically do everything, and they're, they're tough dudes. And so I don't see an issue with Tibbs maybe not trusting them, you know, down the stretch or For whatever sure. like that. I would love to see more of Sarge in with, you know, the, the rest of the starters, but... It's going to have to play Covington for less than 41 minutes. Yeah, to see that yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we're, we're basically looking at uh, Sarge being a better, tougher version of Nemanja Bialica, who just didn't really catch on with Tibbs last year. Especially with Sarge, right? Uh, I think with Wiggins, um, his defense obviously needs to become more consistent as well for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, there's, there's a handful of those guys on our team, but they do have a lot of tough players, right? You know, Josh Okogie. Oh, yeah. Impressive. He's playing well. He's, He's had play- a good rookie year for sure. Incredibly well. And, you know, Thibodeau's a guy who doesn't play a lot of rookies, but he does seem to trust him uh, early on so far this season. I... Okoge could end up a steal in this draft. And one other random observation, Andrew Wiggins, off to another hot start shooting the ball this season. He's shooting threes, man. He's stroking it. 41.7% from three this season. I'm still skeptical. He started last year incredibly hot as well, and then he fizzled out. Yeah, Charks and I had, had kind of had side conversations about Wiggins, and I think we came to the consensus that, like, has he improved since coming into the league? I mean, unless the shooting thing is real. Other than that, he hasn't at all. 
I'm not sure he really has improved. Right? No. I mean, still inconsistent defensively. Still a streaky scorer who doesn't do much besides pull up from mid-range. Pull, yeah, and, pulling up from mid-range. Uh, still hasn't expanded his dribbling moves behind, besides that spin move. Yeah, not a lot oh, of improvement. He loves that circle spin. He loves that spin. Yeah, the circle yeah. button, right? Yeah. One of the things that really stuck out to me in the past when it was the core of Carl Anthony Towns, Wiggins, and Zach Levine was that everything I'd heard from, you know, the locker rooms and everything and, and reporters talking about this, but it was Zach Levine was the maniacally hard worker. Andrew Wiggins was just like <laughs> never really mentioned in that vein. And that, that really stuck out to me. It's like Zach Levine has improved over his past three much years. Much better. Yeah. He's a much better player. Whereas yeah. with Wiggins, we're still kind of looking at, you know, this broad template of this hyper-athlete 2-3 wing. Can it click for him? I mean, or, or I mean, like for Victor Oladipo, it took until year five. You know, Wiggins now is in year five. I don't think Wiggins will ever have that sort of role, but I'm sure it can click for him because really— you're really just asking him to do two things. You're asking him to be a much more committed defender, and you're asking him to hit threes. If he can get those two things down, everything else can kind of open up organically. But we're still waiting on those two key elements of his game. And I think, too, though, worth pointing out, like, if you look at this team the last two years, like, Wiggins and Towns, they were kind of forced into roles. And they're like, okay, we're a contender. You've got to do X, Y, Z things to make the team better. you got to buy into this role, do this, do that. When they're like, we're 22... We should do whatever we feel like it kind of grow our game, kind of expand and flourish. And it's kind of flipping with Simmons and Embiid were in Philadelphia, right? Right before it's like, okay, Simmons and Embiid, shoot whatever you feel like it, do whatever you want, who cares? We're growing. Now it's okay, now, now you're with Butler. Now you've got to kind of grow, like kind of confine your game and fit him. Now I think with like Towns and Wiggins, you have a bunch of tough guys around them and they can just jack shots now, right? So like this team makes more sense for those two guys to do what the best they can do. And maybe when they're like 25, 26, they're ready to win. But right now, it's like, let him just jack shot, see what happens. And one other note on Andrew Wiggins that's interesting. He started working this summer with Rob McClanahan, um, longtime NBA trainer. And he's the guy who's worked with Derek Rose this summer. And it's interesting. Rose, it's really his first healthy offseason in a while. And his shot, again, small sample, but looks improved. It looks more fluid. Um, I think they worked out a little bit of a hitch at the top of his release. His shot looks good, better than it has in many, many years for Derrick Rose and for Andrew Wiggins um, and Derrick Rose. Maybe there's something to that. Working with a new trainer, sometimes it all, it's all it takes to find. It's like the right coach for the right team. Maybe right. these guys need the right trainer for them. Um, before we talk NBA sophomores, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Unleash the most powerful Pixel ever on the network chosen by Google, Verizon. Pixel 3 has more than just any camera. It takes group selfies, snaps, and portrait mode and helps you always pick the perfect moment with Top Shot, which automatically recommends the best picks where no one is blinking and everything looks just right. And the Pixel 3 also has the power of Google Lens, which means you can search what you see. And when you get the Pixel 3 on Verizon, it comes with America's best network. Now families can mix and match their unlimited plans in the best network. With Unlimited on Verizon, everybody in the family gets what they want without paying for the things they don't. Visit your local Verizon store today or learn more at po.st slash the ringer. And now back to the corner three. We're back with the kids are all right segment that we use to discuss the youth of the NBA. I wrote an article on Tuesday on the ringer.com about some of the, the rising and falling sophomores across the league. Just a little bit of check-in on some of the players across the league. And we're going to discuss some of those starting with Deion Fox. Who, John, seems like he's here to save the Sacramento Kings, isn't he? 
I mean, they've kind of put their team around them this year. Like last year, they didn't know what they were really doing. They're playing Zebo a lot and Kufus. Oh, now boy. they have like a system. They have a formula. We're getting De'Aaron in space. He's pushed them all whenever he feels like it. And now like they finally have a team that kind of makes sense together. And De'Aaron's kind of the head of the, head of the snake right now. The system is not playing old dudes. You get, you get De'Aaron Fox, who is arguably the fast... No, he is the fastest player in the NBA. And so you get this Ferrari, and then you also get Zebo. And you're like, let's just pound it into Zebo last season. Like, I don't know what... I mean, Jaeger had talked about playing fast last season, and it just didn't work out. But this season, it was just a complete overhaul. It's like, yes, we got this guy at the fifth pick for a reason. Why not build around him? It's working. He's the most improved sophomore of the season, isn't he? I would say so. I wonder, but I wonder how much of it is just his situation. I guess it's hard to find the difference, right? He's definitely in a better situation than last year. It's hard to quantify that for sure, John. Um, it, you know, I'm sure a lot of it does have to do with situation. I think some of it absolutely has to do with his own individual changes too. He's, he's stronger this year. Uh, he clearly worked on his body this year. He's been better at drawing fouls at the mm-hmm. rim. He's not avoiding contact quite as much. His finishing has been better. There's been some more creative finishes um, from him over the, uh, so far this season. He's drawing fouls on 16% of his half-court possessions, uh, which is pretty similar to what DeMar DeRozan put up last year. And, you know, look, these are things he might not sustain over the course of the year. But early on, right. these are differences from just late last year with him that we didn't see before. And the thing is, the biggest change I've seen is just how confident he is stepping into these pull-up threes. Yeah, he's making them. My goodness. Yeah, he's he's hitting them at, what, like a 36% clip? So, like, league average, this is fine for a player who, you know, has basically been knocked on his jumper for how many years now? And it's always looked Since good. High school. It's always looked good. That's that's the really weird yeah. thing about Fox. We Whenever we talk about his shot not falling or him not taking threes, it's always like, oh, but his shot looks good. He just doesn't take them. He's finally taking them now. For what it's worth, he is shooting 46.7% on 15 catch-and-shoot threes, so 7 of 15. And then on 28 pull-ups, he has hit 12 of them at 42.9%. There you uh, go. Small sample that could fall off a cliff immediately. He's still not shooting well from the free-throw line. But his floater looks better, his three-pointer looks better, and as you said, he looks more confident. Uh, to me, he's absolutely the most improved rookie. There's been a disappointment, though. John, who is the most oh. disappointing sophomore so far this Gotta season? Gotta be our guy, Josh Jackson, man. He oh. has fallen off hard. He can barely get minutes on Phoenix, and they're like the worst team in the league. Yeah, Mikhail Bridges is now starting. He took his spot. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's sad, really, to me, when guys fall off this quickly, because Josh Jackson at Kansas was always a guy where you're like, okay, there's questions about his jumper. You know, there's questions about his scoring efficiency, but at least he can do these things. At least he can be a solid secondary playmaker for your team. And at least he's always going to always going to grind on defense. Yep. And he doesn't do it anymore. What happened, Danny? To be honest, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I've been, I've been looking at the numbers as if that were going to tell me anything about this, this <laughs> precipitous decline. But do you guys know what his PER is this season? No. What is it? It's 4.3. Whoa. Whoa. That's, that's, that, that's really probably bad. the lowest PER I've seen from any like notable player like in the past like five years. That's a really, really low figure. I think what I'm thinking is like it's two things. Like one, like to be a secondary playmaker means you have to start off the ball. And if Josh is off the ball, nobody cares, right? He's just not being guarded. Right. And then number two, like, it's hard to grind defensively on a team like Phoenix, where like they're just giving up points left and right anyways. So he's like, man, to make an impact, I gotta get the ball. To get the ball, I gotta take a bunch of bad shots. Like, 
I'm thinking like, how many guys become good shooters in the NBA? Like how many times do we draft a guy top seven? Oh, he's a great athlete, you know, really athletic, big wing, works, needs to work on his jumper. It feels like that jumper doesn't get better for a lot of guys. Right. I, so I think um, the most recent example might be Jalen Brown, who isn't really a great shooter, but a like he's, 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 yeah, yeah. he's improved. Yeah. He's definitely improved. Aaron Gordon, another one. Yeah, Aaron Gordon yeah. is a big one. But yeah, other than that, and obviously, just have to mention Kawhi is like the best case scenario. Sure. The, the guy, the one yeah. everybody aspires to be. I mean, you look at like Josh, Justice Winslow, Stanley Johnson. Yeah. Not many. But you know, I want to go back to something you said, John, about Jackson, where he's on a team where it's hard to put on effort because nobody is. The team is just bad. It's a bad team. The Phoenix Suns are going to be drafting high again. And that's kind of why I just don't get it with Jackson. He, he is somebody who your minutes are dwindling. They are just fading away quickly. You are losing your spot to a rookie, Mikhail Bridges. And guess what? The team is going to stink, and they're going to draft another guy who's pretty much at your position. There's a lot of forwards and wings that are going to be drafted high in this draft. TJ Warren has been better than Josh Jackson so far this season. He's been good this year. He's been good. He he might turn himself around and shoot threes now. Yeah, he's hitting spot-up threes finally. He's Uh, only 25. I like TJ a lot. That's what I mean. It's like Josh Jackson... This is adversity for you right here, and you need to fight through this. You need to play hard on defense and set a tone for your team, like you did at Kansas. Hustle for loose balls. Rebound the ball. I mean, it's just not there. It seems like there's a lack of focus with some of the little decisions he makes. Like, I had a play um, in the article where like he's defending Russell Westbrook, and he just bites on a subtle little fake. And yep. It's like, there's just, the effort's not there. Nothing's there. He's a zero right now, and... He can't be, or else he's going to lose his role. And he, he might be the type of player who has his option declined, and he might not get a chance with that second contract. Like this, this is about more wow, than just. It's gotten that bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm option just saying. Declined. I'm just saying. Like, if you're Josh Jackson, you're going to be thinking, "Damn, like this could go south fast for me unless I turn it around." Time to start busting my ass on defense. It just hasn't happened. I mean, it needs to. We're, we're basically, yeah, as we've been saying, we're looking at one of the worst teams in the NBA. The fact that he hasn't been able to get even consistent low minutes is concerning. We, we're looking at a situation that might be close to, you know, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. Well, to be fair, though, they do have a lot of wings for like as bad as they are. Like TJ Warren's a good player. Yeah, I like Devin TJ. Booker's an all-star near player. Mikhail Bridges is a good rookie. They, they, have, they have Trevor Reza too. It's just a really weird team. So then would you consider bumping Josh Jackson to the four? He doesn't really have the body to, nah, to too, do that too right too now. small. He can't, he can't do it. They tried it last year. I, I don't and think he ever can. Uh, one thing to note, Josh Jackson on Wednesday night in the, in the Suns win against the Spurs, a 20-point win over the San Antonio Spurs. Jackson played 22 minutes with 14 points, four rebounds and three assists. I haven't seen the game yet. Haven't had a moment to catch up on that this morning. Maybe he was better in that game. Um, Wait, just, so... I just, just wanted to throw that out there because I haven't seen the game yet. So his PER um, was 4.3 after that game. <laughs> <laughs> what was what, it before the game? What on earth? <laughs> that, that's a surprising stat. Danny, who is the most surprising sophomore so far this season? I think it's Monte Morris. Yes! Oh, deep cut. I like it. I like it. Denver Nuggets. Yeah. Backup point guards. How come, Danny? First part is I wasn't really high on Morris uh, entering the 2017 draft because I, I tend to kind of prioritize upside over production. and Right there with your, especially with an older point card like him. Right. Yeah. But what we're looking at with Morris, especially in this season, is just a really solid player who literally does not make any mistakes. He currently has an eight to one assist turnover oh, ratio. It's so glorious. Like, I mean, that, he, he has, I think he's the career record holder in NCAA for assist turnovers. Yeah, that's, it's, 
Incredible. And I think there's kind of a, a trend here or a pattern. You really can't have too many glaring weaknesses or else these teams are going to just rip your head off. The more players who are comfortable, who know who they are, and who basically can do everything without necessarily exposing that many weaknesses, at the point guard position on the bench, the better. You we're looking at guys like Fred Van Vliet, and even this year, a guy like Jalen Brunson, who is basically along the lines of the same player. Even somebody like TJ McConnell, who for a couple yeah. of years, the Sixers yeah. has been very important right. off their bench. I mean, he's just a smart player. I think the concern with Monte is like on defense in the playoffs. But like, so there was a there was a play in the Rockets game the other night. I'm watching it. And like the ball goes to Monte Morris and like the shot clock's winding down. He didn't take a bad shot. He gets back into the offense, gets into the lane and then finds Jokic for an easy layup. And I'm like, how many guards the Nuggets roster would have done that in that situation? I feel like he really fits a need for that team specifically. They need a guy who can move the ball and get Jokic involved when he's not getting the ball. And I think that could be Morris. I think he got a big role. What's going to happen with Isaiah Thomas, though? You mentioned how he's a guy who just kind of moves the ball. I think that's what's weird about watching him. Uh, for for the article this week, Danny, like we we had like a Morris blurb in there that we cut because it was like way too long. Right. But it was way too long. But like it's just funny watching Morris. Like I watched back all of his assists, and it's like there's nothing in there where it's like, whoa, what a pass! It's just like good, rock solid, accurate right. passes delivered to his teammates. Like there's not like nothing is off target with him, but nothing is spectacular or flashy either. He's just a rock-solid point guard. That's what you want in a backup. And really, on on that team, he's the only real traditional point guard. He's basically mm-hmm. filling in for what Jameer Nelson was two years ago, except he's, what, like four inches taller and a billion years younger. Yeah, absolutely. I think when Isaiah Thomas and Will Barton come back, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what head coach Mike Malone does with that rotation. Because Jokic is your He's your primary playmaker at center position. Um, but then you're going to have a glut of guards. You're going to have Jamal Murray, who you mentioned earlier, John, with Gary Harris. And then you have Will Barton coming back, Monte Morris, who's been a stabilizer for them. And then Isaiah Thomas, who you signed to be a spark plug scorer. I, I wonder, we talked about rotations earlier with I Philadelphia, I can tell John. you, Morris is going to lose out his job, which is too bad. But he's just going to lose his job. That's just the reality. And, unless it's a situation like with Brett Brown and TJ McConnell, where it's like, yeah, I just got to play him. But maybe you're going to make the sacrifice like Brown has this year with McConnell. He can shoot, though, at least. That's the thing TJ can't do is Morris yeah. can shoot it. That's a big difference. McConnell's gotten better. He's solid. Not great. Solid. I, I mean, okay. at, at this point, he's like a, a third or fourth stringer, so it's fine. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you're in Philly, you kind of lose track of who's a good shooter. Like, anyone can make a shot. He's a great shooter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, exactly. The bar for kind of gets twisted. <laughs> yeah, when we're celebrating, you know, Fultz... Anything, uh, anything he does, a nine like, foot pull up. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, home run. Yeah. It it, it gets kind of weird yeah. listening to the Sixers broadcast. Yeah. Because anything Fultz does positively, they're just like, oh, I like that. You know, it, it didn't go in, but you know, at least he showed the gumption. <laughs> it's the same thing with Simmons right now too, where Sixers fans just want him to shoot the mid range pull up, so it's at least a threat. Because right. right now it's not a threat. He's only shot an eighteen. Uh, pull-ups this year, and he's only made one of them. You got to do more than that. Uh, who is the most misunderstood sophomore, John? Okay, I got to give some love. Uh, he's gotten a lot of fan on the internet, an unnamed person in our company who may or may not sign our checks. He thinks Dennis <laughs> is just complete trash. I think Dennis Smith, he's had a very tough season, but I think people are underestimating how much he's had to make going from the primary playmaker to playing with Luca. I think we got to give Dennis a little more time it's only been a month. I think he's actually shooting the ball really well this season. And I think long-term, he can fit with Luka in more of a two-guard, attacking guard kind of role. And I think this is going to happen in Dallas. But 
it's just a big transition. And right now, people are going to write him off too quickly, I think. Luka has gotten better already this season on defense and on offense for that matter. On defense, has gotten better. Um, with the fit, can can Dennis Smith be good enough defensively for that to work? Uh, I mean, I maybe like in three years. I just think right now, Dennis has become like a scoring guard. Like he's moving towards that role away from being a point guard. But you're right. The defense, that's that's like a five-year issue. That, we're talking right now just the offense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to defend my man Dennis here. It's, it, tough. it's, it's tough. like it's like Jabari Parker said. You don't get paid to play defense anyway, right. right? So it's okay. Who cares about defense? I I think for the next two years, I'm still going to be mesmerized by his athleticism, and by by the time his rookie contract ends, that's when I'll start to really st- look into his long term fit in the league. I, I think at this point, I'm still like he's young. He's really athletic. He can. Kind of, he looks like you know a, a star point guard of old. A, I, I a still Steve have Francis type, but I'm saying a Steve Francis type with Luca would be pretty good. If he's also Dennis is willing to play off the ball. That's the thing too. Dennis is not like I got to make this my team versus Luca's team. He's willing to take a backseat to Luca, which I think is a big step right there for a young player. It can work between those guys. So um, it, it can work. Is Kemba Walker the best case scenario for a guy like Dennis Smith? Yeah, something like that. Francis Walker, you know, slightly smaller spark spark plug scoring type of point guard. I think that Teague, could, a T kind of guy. I mean, those are all paths for him to take. That's a happy result. Yeah, for Dennis Smith, I think if you're Dallas, you're satisfied with that with the ninth pick. You you're, you're not, you know, you wish he could be Kyrie Irving, but he's probably not going to be that. Like an athletic yeah, Kyrie. see, Kyrie's a guy like don't let too many young guys play like Kyrie. That's just going to get in their heads, and you know, I don't need Dennis doing that much dribbling. That's not going to work. Right. Throw an outlaw pass to the weekend and look ahead at some of the top games. On Friday, we have the Raptors versus the Boston Celtics. It's the first time since the opening week of the season those two teams have faced each other. Toronto has dropped two in a row, and Boston has been better as of late. Danny, is there anything specific you're watching for in this matchup of two top Eastern Conference teams? I think for the past two games, one thing that I've noticed with the Raptors is that we're we're definitely at a point where we're seeing Kawhi pressured a lot more. And He's kind of prone to tunnel vision. Uh, There are certain plays in the Pelicans' loss where he was basically just dribbling in circles for like 17 seconds. And I was just like, what what are are we doing here? Um, So we're still not seeing him very comfortable being that kind of lead playmaker. And I would love to see that improve, especially against one of the best Eastern teams in the league. With Kawhi Leonard, of course, we need to see him develop his playmaking more. And one thing that I wonder that could promote that for him is what Nick Nurse mentioned this week. Um, He said at a practice that he wants to play a lineup that has no traditional point guard in it. So something like Pascal Siakam, Danny Green, Kawhi Leonard, OG Ananobi, and Sergi Baca. No point guard. Oh my goodness. That's what I want to see. Just a big jumbo lineup. And this is what Nick Nurse said. And you'll see that lineup and say, who's bringing the ball up the floor? And I'll say, oh, well, maybe Pascal or maybe Kawhi, maybe OG. That's what I want to oh, see, John. I, I want to see Point Pascal. That's interesting. I think it makes sense versus the Celtics as well because they kind of have a versatile, switchy lineup where aside from Kyrie Irving, they don't have a small ball handler on that team, but everybody else can handle the ball. I think that's the team you should do it against, John. Yeah, I want to see also like no center either. They can do a five-wing lineup and they can put like the Ron <laughs> Wright up there. 
That'd be pretty, they could switch all five positions. <laughs> Basically, That'd be interesting. what I was thinking was this Nick Nurse lineup, proposed lineup, is Charks's fever dream, and and Charks just immediately was just like, no, we can add another wing. There could always be another more, wing. There's always more room for more wings. You know this. <laughs> so who are you taking off the floor? You're taking off Ibaka and put, putting on a yeah. putting on a wing. Oh, maybe, I don't think Ibaka yeah. can go switch on guards. Really, he's been way better this year, though. I think I, he looks rejuvenated. With definitely been five. better for sure. Yeah, definitely been better. So I, you would put like Miles in instead of Ibaka or what? No, I say Delon Wright. So you go Wright, Green, Leonard, Siakam, OG. Delon might be a little too close to a traditional point guard for Nurses. Uh, that's true. Vision. We're we're gonna yeah. getting a little. Yeah, that's true. It's a good either point. way, I maybe I, Norman Powell. I don't know. <laughs> either way, whether it's against if if it happens against Boston. I think it'll be intriguing to see how Boston would adjust to something like that. Because I, I think with these jumbo lineups, I also want to see Boston do the same thing where they go without Kyrie Irving and they have a lineup of like Hayward, Brown, Tatum, Morris, Horford. I mean, imagine that jumbo versus yeah, jumbo lineup. How is uh, Scary Terry going to feel about that? <laughs> I don't know if he's going to appreciate you know, not being in the floor at all. Probably not great. I'm sure Kyrie wouldn't be happy if it happened for an extended period of time either. But for a short stint, five, right. six minutes, I would love to see those two large lineups play against each other because it can work because those guys can still handle the ball. I think what's interesting with what Nick Nurse has done this season is he's been very proactive in terms of lineup adjustments. So I think... He's played 200 lineups this yeah, year, I'm pretty and, sure. And he's the only coach in the league who actually flexes his center spot in the starting lineup. And so he's obviously... I think if they were to do these two jumbo lineups together, it would be Nick Nurse who's the aggressor. He would be the one who's trying to dictate the matchup rather than the Celtics coming in with, I don't know, like Shemi, Tatum, Brown, and whoever. But and but here's the thing, like, it sounds crazy, but in the playoffs, this is going to happen. Right. Like, it's a hunt of certainty they're going to go to these lineups when it really comes down to it. Because it's all about finding weak spots. It's all about removing weak spots, finding on the other team. Speaking about lineup changes, uh, the Utah Jazz have a road back-to-back. They face the Sixers on Friday night and then the Celtics on Saturday night. Man, they lost by 50 points to the Mavs, man. Come on now. Hard to believe that happened. Uh, John, before the show, you mentioned how the one lineup that they needed to make is with Derek Favors. Yeah, I mean, they've tried it for a long time, and they fought against the current. It was very, very noble of them to like reward Favors for his hard work and sacrifice. Blah. It doesn't work anymore. Like, it just, it can't do it. So the number that jumped out to me, I was looking at the numbers on this. When Gobert is on the court with Favors, net rating 1.6. When Gobert is on the court without, fa- without Favors, net rating 7.4. Like, that's just, two, that's just free points to be gotten for a 7 and 17. They have to do it. And then Favors without Gobert, they're outscored by 21.6 points per 100 possessions, and that's over 154 minutes. So it's a, not a large sample for this point of the season. So basically, the Jazz are running the same offense and the same defense. And it's just teams Teams have figured this out. I think it's more, it's just like the league has become even more the other way. Like Utah was kind of half in, half out with like this two big man lineup. And there were still enough teams who played traditional lineups that it made sense. But now the league is just so small, it just can't work anymore, I don't I think. Yeah, we can't even play favors at the five. Like that that was the tradi- that was the conventional wisdom is, oh, well, you just kind of have to have to stagger these two centers. You can't do the twin towers anymore. And yet in the limited minutes, the Twin Towers is doing way better than Favors is at the five. One one point Zach Lowe made on his podcast this week that that was interesting is wait there are pods of the Ringer is he on a, a Ringer podcast? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Zach, I'm a company man. Yeah, Zach mentioned how Utah's defensive shot distribution, in other words, the shots they're they're forcing opponents into or that they're allowing, is pretty much identical 
to what it was last season. And it is. I looked at cleaningglass.com and there's no discernible difference. Um, opponents are just hitting more shots. Uh, so at some point this year, I do think if that continues, Utah should be better defensively. Right now, they're closer to the middle of the pack. Um, but they still have the same pieces right. they have in the past. They should be better conceivably at one point during the course of the season, you would it, think. It's really interesting because, you know, continuity has really worked for the Blazers. You know, mm-hmm. they're one of the one of the best teams in the West yet again. Um, Zach Collins, one sophomore we didn't mention, having a great year. Absolutely. Shout out Collins Hive. And so with the Jazz, I think one big thing that we're all kind of waiting on is like, when is this? when are their three-point shooters going to show up? Like, I think Ingles is the only person shooting above average in their rotation right now. And he's only shooting six threes a game. So that's not going to make up for everything. Like everyone is shooting in the low 30s. That can't really work when your defense isn't holding up. Besides my guy, Alec Burks, he's killing it. He needs more minutes, (laughs) I think. Yeah. Like Quinn's never liked Alec Burks. Alec Burks can play ball, man. I enjoy that on this podcast, we can get excited about talking about Alec Burks. But unfortunately, that's all we have time for today, guys. Next week, we're actually going to be recording on Tuesday. And having a special Wednesday edition show. We won't be back next Friday. So we'll, you, we'll be back. We're going to not watch basketball, maybe. We will be back on Wednesday, though. So we're looking forward to next week. Danny, John, looking forward to next Wednesday. Thank you, guys. Yep, as always. And thank you so much for listening to The Corner 3. Please give us five-star rating on iTunes. We get to beat Shea Serrano's Villains podcast. So please give us a five-star rating. We need to beat Shay. This is very, very important make us all very, very happy. This is make Kevin happy. I'm, I'm a neutral party here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be Shay for sure. I'm not even worried about it. Love you, Shay. Yeah, I love you too, Shay. I listened to the first episode. It was, it was very good. Uh, give that a listen. A special shout out to Bobby Wagner for producing the podcast and to my good friend Elon for listening to the show. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday. Wednesday.